0: Alright, so we are in Judges 8. We'll pick up where we left off. For context, where we left off, we're in the book of Judges. This is the period of time between Joshua and the first king. Uh, And in that gap of time, the Lord's intention was that he would directly lead his nation and call them back to him. So one of the ways God's doing that is he's raising up these judges. So far, they've been from a variety of tribes. They've been from a variety of classes um, they have been both men, and we've had Deborah, a woman, that God has used to do that. Um, and God's called these people up to serve the Lord. In chapter 6, he calls up a guy named Gideon, who's from the tribe, a very small tribe in Manasseh, and he is working when he picks him up, and Gideon cleans up his house, repents of his sins, takes care of the idols in his home, and God puts him to work leading God's people against the enemy. He has a big victory with 300 people against uh, 150,000 people. So a good lopsided victory that can only be giving God the credit. Um, And then in chapter 7, Gideon identifies or sends people home to get down to that 300. He sends home the first group that are fearful. He sends home the second group that are not wanting to be there, basically. Like they have other concerns and things like that. And uh, in, in doing that, they get to the water and they just jump down on the water and they f- treat themselves before being aware and awake. Um, and uh, he sends that group of people home, leaving him 300 people. Um, and then at the end of the chapter seven, remember, he has this group of Ephraim that come marching up after the battles, after the Midianites are on the run, he's got this group of Ephraimites that take some of the wells. And they take it upon themselves to chop the heads of two kings off and bring, in a very gory manner, bring those heads to Gideon and lay them before their feet. And we get the second half of that story. But remember that part of what's going on with Ephraim right now is they were not part of the group that showed up that initial 32,000. There were no Ephraimites as part of the 300. So God's doing a work through this group of people and the Ephraimites just kind of jump in after things get successful. And they show up, and now at the beginning of chapter 8, uh, they're going to bring their complaints to Gideon, and we get to see him deal with a third group of people. He's dealt with the cowards, he's dealt with the unwary or selfish, depending on how you read it, and now he gets to deal with the complainers. And this is, sadly, all of these people are Israelites. They're all in the kingdom of God. So they're the kinds of personalities you may meet in a church or a synagogue, um, but they are, the, they are the kinds of personalities that, that Gideon gets to deal with. Um, Judges chapter 8 then starts with verse 1. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us and not called us when you went out to fight the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So this is where we get the image of who these Ephraimites are. And they're going to be this way for a long time. It says, Why have you done this to us? That's an interesting accusation. I want to pick apart this accusation. What has Gideon done to them? other than kick the Midianites out of their territory and free up wells so they can get water to drink. Like he hasn't done anything to Ephraim unless Ephraim's worried about their pride and maybe they're sad they didn't get the glory of battle and that that's been done to them as they didn't get everything they thought they should get. It says that you didn't call us. um, So there's this self-centered reputation that Ephraim's starting to get at this point and they're going to have it their primary beef is that they weren't included in this lopsided battle that most people left before it even started, right? So in their reprimanding him sharply in the Hebrew, it means there's actually a connotation of great force or violence that goes with that. Like they're confronting him in a very violent kind of way. They're angry at Gideon. And and so to get the tone of this, you have to imagine they're coming up ready to fight Against Gideon, because Gideon just did all these great things for the kingdom. And you have this odd situation. The idea of reprimanding someone is that you are taking the elder or superior status. When you reprimand someone, it's like a parent reprimanding a child or a boss reprimand, reprimanding an employee. Um, it, is, it is presuming seniority when they approach Gideon. Now, Gideon's this younger generation. His dad's still alive and ruling in his hometown. The Ephraimites that come out might be his elders when it comes to chronology. Um, but at this point, Gideon's the only person in Israel doing anything for the kingdom, actually moving the enemy out of the territory. So when they come up and they reprimand him sharply, you wonder at some level if part of what they're reprimanding is that he's doing God's work itself, right? Like the city and his town in the last chapter, the the elders of the city got upset when they took down the Tower of Baal, and it's almost kind of reflective of that. So are there people that would actually fight against God's work that call themselves God's people? And the Bible would say, yeah, there are. Not everybody's on the same page in Israel, and these tribes aren't on the same page. So Gideon doesn't call them back in chapter 635, And he does invite them after the initial victory, which makes you wonder why. So there's a grain of truth in the accusations. You didn't invite us up front. Why didn't Gideon invite them up front? And that's kind of a question we don't get an answer to in the scriptures. In chapter 7, verse 23, it's Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, his own tribe, that shows up. And then it's in verse 24 that Ephraim gets there. So the enemy is accusing Gideon with a partial truth but they're not understanding the heart of where Gideon's coming from. This is where a lot of accusers get their accusations. They take a partial truth, but they twist it to be interpreted in their own way. And that's what Ephraim's doing here. It's more about their glory than about the godly work that's getting done. Really, their response to Gideon should have been, hey, thanks for getting all our wells back. We really appreciate all the work you're doing. And I think in the kingdom sometimes we see a lot of that, right? Instead of just saying, hey, thanks for doing all that work, we're like, well, why aren't I getting any credit for that work? And how come you didn't ask me to be part of this? Um, When really the invitation was they could have shown up. Gideon wouldn't have sent them home unless they drank the water or were scared or fearful. So he would have likely kept them around if they showed up. Um, But Gideon's heart has been to follow the word of God. His heart's been to free Israel from the Midianites. And they're not giving him credit for what his heart is actually intending to do. So a lot of times the resolution in these situations is difficult because Gideon can try to explain himself and that's called being defensive. And he'd be right in doing that. He's like, look, I'm just trying to get the Midianites out of here who are coming through and stealing all of your things and taking the water from your wells and their ugly camels walk all over your crops. So that's all I'm trying to do. Um, But he doesn't do that. And I think it's interesting how he handles this situation um, even this is tough. Those of us in the church, we've seen this kind of stuff. So it's a, it's it's like walking on eggshells to come into these topics. But you see people that are doing things, and then you see people that don't do anything that complain about the people that do things. Have you seen this? And that like, is anybody resonating with that idea? It happens. It's sad when it happens. Uh, it happens to Jesus. Compare this to Luke. 521. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 30. And their scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Then in verse 33, same chapter, Luke 5. And they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? So in one chapter, they're complaining about Jesus, about Jesus' disciples, and even comparing his disciples to John's disciples. It's like they're looking for ways to be angry about God's work getting done. So reflectively, you've got to wonder, like, why does Ephraim do this? Why don't they just say thank you? And what is it about some people where they're not secure enough in their own faith that they think if they're missing out on works, they're somehow less than people that are doing those works? And it's a really difficult situation. So Jesus does what the Pharisees should have been doing. He goes out and does everything, and then they complain about it. But it's that same spirit of contention that we see back here in Gideon. It's this idea of not being unified, not being grateful. There's no joy. There's no support. There's no long-suffering love, none of that kind of thing. Essentially, these are people that aren't serving God. Because they're not serving God, they're serving themselves. And that becomes difficult when they call themselves part of the kingdom. So you got to know these types for who they are. Jude 1.16, the murmurers, the complainers, people that walk after their own lusts, the mouth speaks great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. These are people that just want advantage for themselves. And it's, it's, it's sad, but you got to identify these people and act, and that's what Gideon does. Gideon says to them, verse 2, so he says to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezar? Remember that's Gideon's tribe? God's delivered, you into, your, delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And what, I was, what was I able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger towards him subsided. They were actually angry at him when he said that. All Gideon does is he compliments them and says, Who am I compared to you? Look, you just killed two kings. I didn't do, we just ran people. We had pitchers and torches and we yelled at them. But look at you, you killed two kings. You're awesome. And that just settles them right down because they get the glory they think they should have. But that glory he's handing them is worthless because it has nothing to do with the kingdom or what God's asking for them to do. But Gideon's diplomatic, reflective of his dad, uh, back in chapter six. Think of what Gideon doesn't say here. He does not say, um, that he was called to do this by God. He doesn't say that they were supposed to do this back in Joshua 24. He's doing their job for them because they vowed to Joshua that they would do this work of getting the Midianites out of their land. So they're vow breakers, but, and Joshua doesn't say that. Like For me, I'm like getting all defensive for Gideon because I'm thinking, Gideon, why don't you yell at these people? But he doesn't yell at them. He shows great mercy, a ton of grace, And he just showers on them all this credit that they seem to be looking for. So in Judges 129, we we see that passage too where Ephraim was supposed to do this work. And it's pointed out at the beginning of the book of Judges, Ephraim didn't do their work. They would rather make money and do business deals with these people than get them out of their kingdom. So if possible, if you have to deal with these kinds of people, puff them up with the pride that they're looking for and then move on. And then walk away, which is what Ephraim's going to do here. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 12, 18. If it's possible, live at peace with people. You don't have to get into it with them. You don't have to argue and do that sort of thing. And by the way, this is the quickest way to get on with the mission that God has for Gideon. So if he wants to get on with his mission, this is the fastest way to do it. Just compliment these people, make them happy and move on. Lay aside every weight, every sin which tries to snare you, and run the race that's set before you, Hebrews 12:1. Notice the sharp break in the story when we go to verse four. These, these, these are really this is like a detour from the story. And that's what complainers do. They take you off mission, and they get you to focus on things that aren't what God has you to focus on. So when we get to verse four, it's, it just snaps back. When Gideon came to the Jordan, so he just kept moving. Right? Made him happy and moved on. So we've got three groups now. We've got the cowards, we've got the self serving, and we've got the complainers. But Gideon's going to encounter two more groups. Gideon came to the Jordan, and he and a th- uh, the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. He's still with 300 people. So none of the Ephraimites actually joined him. They just wanted credit, but they didn't want to actually do any work. Isn't that amazing? But it's not if you've met these people. Um, <laughs> So when Gideon came to the Jordan, he's tired. That idea of being exhausted there has to do with the point of fainting. So they're about it's not just that they're out of breath. It's that they're out of breath and their knees are starting to quake on them a little bit. Because they've been running after these people as far as they can go. Then he said to the men of Succoth, um, that's an Israelite city, by the way, the tribe of Gad, back in Joshua 13, 27, got that city. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted, and I'm pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. Um, and the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give you bread for your army? So we get a fourth group of people. They're also Israelites. They're in the kingdom of God, or they're supposed to be in the kingdom of God. And you've got people doing what God's called them to do, they're actually getting success and progress in what they're doing, and all they ask is for some food. Could you just hook us up with a little bit of a Papa John's or something? And the people of Succoth say no, and they, they, they mock them. In fact, in verse 15, we'll see they're ridiculing Gideon. They're making fun of what he's doing. You know, what are you so gung-ho about chasing off Midianites for? Anyway, so there's a contempt that comes with what they're doing. So, Gideon has to know them for who they are too. You have to be able to identify these kinds of people. And this is one of those skills that I think mature believers start to get. You identify people who are scared. You identify people who are just kind of more about themselves. You identify the complainers. And you identify the people that would mock and scoff the work of God. And this is not a good place to be. Um, Jude 1.18. How that they are told that, you sh- that there should be mockers in the last times. Those who would walk after their own ungodly lusts. People that are just living for themselves, doing their own thing. It's hard to watch somebody who's on fire for Christ when you're not on fire for Christ. And let's have a little sympathy for that. You have none of the joy of the Holy Spirit going, and along comes somebody who's just bouncing with joy in the Holy Spirit. That's a tough thing to watch. So the instinct in the flesh is to just make fun of them and attack them, which is kind of what's going on. So instead of cheering them on, instead of feeding them, they ridicule them. Gideon, however, is not discouraged. This is what makes Gideon a superstar. Um, so Gideon says, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zelmuna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness with briars. This is why Gideon's not a superstar. Um, Gideon believes so totally That God will give those two kings into his hands. Note that he says, when the Lord has delivered. There's no doubt in what he's saying or in his words. He knows this is going to happen because God told him it was going to happen. So, in that sense, he's not going to be discouraged. He's not going to be waylaid. He's not going to stop to deal with these people now. He's going to put first things first. And what God's commanded him to do comes first. It comes before the fearful, it comes before the selfish comes before the complainers and it's going to come before the mockers and the ridiculers. So they're not going to go into a counseling session here. There's no conflict resolution clinic. Gideon just is going to move on. I think of how when Jesus was dealing with like people that would come at him, um, the response to that was often strong and it was uh, often brutal. So things like, you brood of vipers, or you serpents. How could you escape the condemnation of hell? Because Jesus would identify people that come from that place, those that would mock the Holy Spirit and the work of God, and he identifies them for who they are, and he, and he moves on. But he does, I don't, you don't get the sense that Jesus or Gideon are losing a lot of sleep over this, right? And, 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 and turmoil in the soul is happening. For me, when I have to get into it with somebody, or if I ever do, I'm up late. I don't know about you, but I'm up till midnight thinking about how could I have done that differently? How could I have been more caring or more loving? If you identify people correctly, you don't stay up all night thinking about it because you recognize them for who they are. They're ridiculers. They're mockers. So Jesus shows love and mercy to the humble, but to the prideful, Jesus is brutal. And Gideon's pretty brutal with these people too. When I get done with all this stuff God's called me to do, I'm going to come back and I'm, gonna, I'm going to whip you is basically what he says. Verse 8, Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. Now we get our fifth group of people. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him with ridicule. And he spoke to the men of Penuel saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Slightly different clue on Penuel and who they are. The word Penuel in the Hebrew means facing God. This is, where, this is the place where Jacob wrestled with God all night. This is a significant Jewish location. And Jacob's life was preserved here, and there's this tower that we get to hear about in this sentence. So in the ancient world, you build towers for a couple different reasons. Towers were a place where you could get a little bit of elevation and see a long ways and be able to cover or get a guard post over a large piece of land. Towers were also a place you could hide out if things were happening around you that were stressful. So you've got a group of people right here that want to see everything that's happening, but they want to hide out in their little tower and insulate themselves. And instead of saying he's going to whip these people, the response to this is, I'm going to tear down this tower that you hide out in. You don't need a tower, because God's your protector, not your tower. And we um, hear in the New Testament, all this stuff about tearing down strongholds. I don't know if there's a strong connection there. Um, but we see this first instance of a tower getting tore down. Notice that Gideon says, when I come back in peace, again, the peace, the war, is not with fe- fellow Israelites. That's not his battle. The battle is with the Midianites, that group of people that bring in the false worship and the false religions. Um, So Gideon's not going to be taken away from, again, from that mission of going after those people. So the enemy seems to be having a better grasp on how to deal with Gideon than anybody else does. Notice the Midianites just run, which is exactly what they should be doing in the face of God. But the Israelites, all five of these groups, are just missing the boat on being part of God's elite task force in the land. So Jesus tells a parable where folks hear the word of God and they react to the word of God in very different ways. So when God spoke to Gideon, Gideon has the word of God to move forward on. And we have an entire book called the word of God that we can read and move forward on. So we have way more than Gideon had. But Jesus tells this parable, when people hear the word of God, it's like a seed getting planted in their heart. And some seeds will fall by the wayside, and it was trodden down. The fowls of the air devoured it, and some fell on a rock as soon as it was sprung up, and it withered away because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And others fell on the ground and sprang up and bear fruit a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus cries when he says this parable because it's heartbreaking That all the people of Israel have been called to do the work of God, and so few of them are ready to do it. And you get these images of these different groups of people and how they react to God's word. You get the enemy that snatches them away and takes that courage from their heart, just like the, the fearless, the fearful people. You got the people with no roots or the people that fall to temptation like the selfish or the unwary people. You've got the people that have cares and riches of this world, like the complainers or people that are even mocking uh, Gideon as he moves forward. And then you've got these people that bear fruit, the saints. And in Gideon's situation, it's 300 people out of an entire nation. And for Jesus, those are the people that he calls out. But I think for God, it breaks his heart that his children act like this when the word of God is so clear. And at least for me, I think of that and I think I got to take notice of what God wants in my life and actually do it and not stop from doing it. And then even if people mock or make fun or like, why do you spend so much time doing Jesus stuff? My response should be, why aren't you spending so much time doing Jesus stuff? Isn't this what we're called to? Like, isn't this the heart of what we are and who we are? Why aren't we all doing that? And Gideon's moving forward. He does what he's going to do. Verse 10. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies were with them about 15,000. So it's still 300 men against 15,000. We're still vastly outnumbered here. And all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for 140, 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. That was the original total of 135, Paul. Then Gideon went up by the road, to, of those who dwell in tents on the east of Noba and Beha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Karko is located about a 100 miles east of the Jordan River. That means that Gideon's army ran hundreds of miles from the center of Israel, about 80 miles to the Jordan And then another hundred miles past that. So these are, of course they're exhausted. Of course they're tired. There's only two kings left. Gideon takes the army out. He presses on to get those two kings. Even though they're tired, they still keep going with the work of God. And I think for people in ministry or people that are trying to do God's work, there's a point where you're exhausted. I'm working full time and I'm trying to do ministry and I'm done doing this. Or I'm down at the New York City and I'm flying back to do this. And there is a point where in the ministry you get tired. And Gideon's a good example of like, even though he's tired, he's still pressing forward. and He's running that race. Uh, don't you all know that those, who, that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you might obtain it. That's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Run like it matters. So if you think to yourself when you wake up in the morning, either today could be the day that I die or today could be the day that Jesus returns. Either one of those thoughts gives you a great urgency in life. And Jesus asks us to have that kind of urgency, that this could be our last night together ever. And I say that and Steph gets like, don't say things like that, Sean. But we should say it not to discourage ourselves, but to encourage ourselves to do the work that God's given us tomorrow morning and even tonight like if the lord returned while we're doing bible study that's i'm all for that. If the lord returns while i'm seeing the latest greatest blockbuster, i'm a little embarrassed. So you think, how do i redeem the time? How do i take every thought and make it captive to Jesus Christ and run the race even though i'm tired, like it matters in how i'm doing things. Then Gideon went up. He's attacking from the northwest. And up is geographically accurate when that happens. So they thought he would be coming, if you look at a map, from the southwest, but he gets them why they think they're safe because he cuts around and comes at them from the northwest and goes up at them from a different direction. So again, Gideon's using strategy. It doesn't tell us that he prayed about that strategy. He's just working with God at this point. He's got the Holy Spirit. He's moving. He's doing things. Um, And he doesn't need assurance from God at this point in his life. He's just doing the work. God gave him a goal, and he's being creative in how he gets to that goal. Um, It says that the whole army is destroyed in verse 11. That's how it should have looked at the end of the book of Joshua. If they had done their job, the Midianites would be completely gone. So Gideon's actually successful in actually accomplishing that. So then we come to an epilogue, kind of the mission's over. He's defeated these, these kings. But I think this story is not so much about beating up Midianites is it is to deal with the Israelites. And how do you deal with these five different groups of people? Because the story in verse 13 comes back around to what happens after the battle is over, which seems to have more impact for the writer than the actual battle itself, for which we get very little detail, other than that 300 people whipped up on thousands of Midianites. Verse 13, Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Haris, And he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and their elders, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and he said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to weary men? Because they probably said it something like that. (laughs) And he took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth. When he tore down the tower of Penuel and he killed the men of the city. So he deals with both of these groups of people. It is forgivable to be a coward. You're, he's still going to benefit from Gideon's army if you're one of those people back in, in Asher that left the army because you were scared. There's another thousands of Israelites who left the army because they drank the water instead of cupped the water to their mouth. Those people aren't being killed or whipped. Even the Ephraimites, the complainers and the the self-glorifying people, they don't really get dealt with here at this point either, right? But the people that mocked and scorned the work of God, those people are going to get kicked out of the kingdom. They don't have any place in the kingdom. So God's going to deal with them. Uh, He shows them Zeba and Zalmunna. They're still alive. So he's not marching their heads in front of them like the Ephraimites did. Um, But he's going to kill them in a couple seconds. But um, he's basically showing them these kings kings, to say, don't mock God because what you thought could never happen just happened. Penuel, he takes the tower down and he actually kills the people. Read into that what you want. But he takes those people out um, so that they're not there anymore. Then he turns to the Midianite kings in verse 18. He said to Zebah and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? Now, if you're reading this all as one narrative, the last two chapters, you're like, wait, what is he talking about there? Because there's no reference to that in the last chapter. So apparently, these Midianites killed people at Tabor. And the cause of this uprising of the Israelites had something to do with what happened at Tabor. And we're going to find out in a sec that they're Gideon's relatives that were killed. So Gideon gets, God calls him to be an avenger. Which we read about in in Deuteronomy, reminding of them of this, or pointing out what their fault was. Gideon's putting them on trial By, by Deuteronomy, by Mosaic law. He's essentially holding a court case here. Are they aware of the evil that they did? Do they know what they did? So they answered, "As you were, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. They were honorable men that we killed. They fought to the last." They were, it's an honest and direct answer from the Midianite kings. Verse 19, then he said, where are my brothers? They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. And as the Lord lives, if you'd let them live, I wouldn't kill you. In other words, he's laying out the law for these people. You murdered, therefore the consequence of that is murder. If you hadn't murdered, then I wouldn't be killing you right now. So they're understanding what's happening. This isn't just a wrathful, rage-filled anger kill. This is an execution. This is a civic court where the law has been understood, the wrong has been understood, and then they're going to move forward. So the fact that they were brothers, um, it doesn't say, it says sons of my mother. So it seems like Gideon's pointing out that these were actual familial brothers of his. And if that's the case, then he's the avenger of blood. He's the one who rightfully has the right to kill them. If they would have ran to a city of refuge, because they just ran 100 miles, they could have just ran to a city of refuge, they could have been safe. They could have had their day in court. But the day in court would have looked a lot like what we just read. Did you kill these people? Yeah. Okay, then I'm the avenger of blood, and I have a right to, to bring justice to that situation. So that little passage gives a huge light on this whole story for Gideon. Everything Gideon's been doing is to avenge his family. And he's got people there to help him and help him doing it. Uh, so in verse 20, and he said to Jether his firstborn, "Rise and kill them." But the youth wouldn't draw his sword because he was afraid, because he was still a youth. Okay, so this is odd. Anybody who's afraid can go home. Jether sticks with his dad. Like, this is this isn't it could be because the afraid people could have left. He wasn't afraid of fighting Midianites. He's afraid of walking up and killing kings, right? And that's a tough situation, right? We don't know how old Jether is. He could be 40, he could be 10. Uh, it doesn't give anything as to his age. Um, but we should be reading this uh, as this idea of the thing. In verse 20, we get the first glimpse of where Gideon starts to go wrong. So the rest of the chapter, Gideon's going to step by step fall into uh, sin and not doing the right thing. Numbers thirty-five nineteen: The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. That's the law. So when Gideon asks his son to do the killing, he's actually breaking the law in doing that. So it could be that Jether's fear is that um, he's scared that his dad's breaking the law by asking him to do the killing. Because if Gideon's the avenger of blood, his son shouldn't be doing that. That it might go well with you is, is why that should happen. So it's a hint that we are not dealing with Joshua and we're not dealing with Moses. We're dealing with Gideon. This is a judge. He doesn't do everything right. So he strays a little bit. But interestingly, the Midianites actually call him to do the right thing. So Zeba and Zalmunna say, Rise yourself and kill us. The word kill there is paga, which means fall upon us. May you fall upon us. For as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. People get really excited about that verse. Um, The crescent ornaments that go around a camel's neck have been in place for thousands of years. It is believed that the crescent that you see around the camel's neck is the crescent that got integrated into um, Muslim symbols. So it's the crescent that goes on the Muslim flag. It's part of being that nomadic Arabic people. And there's an image that those crescents are open until their end of time comes when all those moons will close because they will cover the world as they're doing it. So it's only a crescent moon because they haven't conquered the world yet. So that idea of the crescent moon showing up in the Bible as far back as Gideon is kind of an interesting historical element which gives a lot of validity to the ancient symbolism of the crescent moon, that it's there. And that it's pointed out here and that those ornaments were taken says that it had a powerful imagery even during this era, that that crescent moon was an important thing that they conquered it. So these people that were attacking the people of God were also people that had put great imagery and symbolism into this crescent moon. Rise and kill yourself. Um, The word paga that they use has to do with rage and anger. Come over here and let your rage fall upon us. You bring your rage to us. Don't put it on your kid. What's interesting is it says Gideon arose and killed, and it uses a different word. It doesn't say paga. He arose and harag, or smote them, which doesn't have any implication of rage or anger whatsoever. So they said, come bring all your hate on me. Gideon got up and he executed. And there wasn't hate and there wasn't rage based on the word that's being used there. It's also not murder, which in the Ten Commandments is the word ratah, ratsach. It's not that word either. The arose thing implies he was sitting in judgment and he stood up and executed the judgment when he did it. So, very passionle- passionless, passion at less. What's the passionless mm-hmm. without passion? I'm just going to go there. Um, that happens there. So, we see that these. Um, this looks very, very different than Ephraim parading around decapitated heads. This is a situation that would have been fairly quick and fast. And wait, you think this would be over, but it's not because he still has to go back to the kingdom of God and deal again with the people of the kingdom of God. You may even suggest there's a sixth group of people that Gideon has to deal with, and those are the fans. He has to deal with those people that would elevate him and put him on a pedestal. So verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also. We want to make you a king for you've delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I won't rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And that's good. This should be the end of the chapter. If this was the end of the chapter, Gideon would be a hero, right? Because he's doing, he's pulling a George Washington here. You want to make me a king, but I don't want to be a king. I want the Lord to be our king. So much of what Gideon's been doing is about, been about these different groups. We've had The cowards, the self-servers, the saints, the accusers, the mockers, uh, those that prefer their towers, maybe you could call them homebodies. And we have all of these different groups of people, but now in verse 22 we get the praisers, those people that would elevate Gideon to a status that God has not put him to. And he says, I will not rule over you, that's good, but then in verse 24, this is not good. Then Gideon says to them, I would like to make a request of you, that each of you would give me an earring from his plunder for they had a golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Sin never approaches us and says, let me destroy your life. Do this one thing and I'll wreck your whole life. Sin never gets into us like that. Sin gets into our skin and into our system by saying, do this one thing that you're really going to enjoy. Do this one thing that feels good. Do this one little thing that you know might be a little off color, but if you do it, it's just the right thing to do because you're doing what's right in your own eyes versus the law of God. What Gideon does here by taking this is he's going to amass to himself a level of wealth that nobody else in Israel has. He's going to take this plunder. And you could argue it's the right thing to do, but we're going to see at the end of the chapter this is the destruction of Gideon. And it starts right here with this little just Give me a little bit of money. Let me have some wealth. And what's wrong with wealth? That's not a bad thing. But we see these small temptations to please yourself, to line your pockets a little bit. That's the fall of good men. He puts off the praisers that want to make him king. He says, I don't need the power. But he fails when it comes to the wealth. Pride, lust, and greed will destroy almost anybody that's successful. And this is one where the greed kind of gets him. It's a small token of appreciation. They're all willing to give it. They happily give him these earrings. Uh, These people, these Ishmaelites they killed are non-Jewish Arabs. Uh, It's a general term that goes all the way back to Ishmael. right? So collectively, this is a fortune. 135,000 soldiers got killed all wearing these earrings, or even if a portion of them are wearing the earrings. He's collecting thousands of gold pieces. Right? He's quickly becoming a fortunate, he's a king in terms of wealth. So likewise, the deacons should not be, should be grave, not double-tongued, not given to wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, First Timothy 3.8. People that lead you in the church should not care about money. And that's tough because I like my ice cream and coffee. So money is nice to have. It gets you stuff. But there has to be a thing where you don't serve that money. And you look around at how that becomes such a temptation. And, you, and, and we see that happening more often when the population of people are poor, that you get pastors that are the wealthiest person in town. Happens all over the third world. And the church just gets used as a place for the pastor to make a lot of money and fly jets and get mansions and things like that. And they live very large. And it's sin by any standard in the Bible When a pastor or a teacher lives above the means of the people he teaches, it's sin. And you should be living right at the same level of where you're at. That's why they say 10 families to start a synagogue in Deuteronomy. 10 families, everybody gives a 10th. That synagogue leader lives exactly at the cost of living of all the people, the average cost of living of the people in that synagogue. And that's just how that should look. But you see this situation where Gideon is nowhere near the average cost of living of the people he's going to serve. So they answered, we will gladly give them. This is the thing in the church. People gladly give their money over. And they're not doing it because the Lord's called them to. They're doing it because they want to honor that person and lift them up. And they spread out a garment. I was talking to, I won't say his name in case he's listening to the podcast, but I got a good friend that comes out of Nigeria and he was talking about this kind of pastor and his friend from childhood came to visit. And so I asked him about, because he still goes to that kind of church. And I said, how do you feel about the fact that your pastor owns a private jet? And he goes, oh, he owns two private jets. And I'm like, why? Why does he need two private jets? You can only fly. Well, so that if one's in the shop, he can still fly the other one. And I'm like, doesn't that bother you as a Christian that you've got a leader doing that with your money? Oh, no, no, no. Because if God is good, then he blesses his servants. So the more money he has, the more we can see that God blesses his servants. It's a whole worldview. And we can see that, right? Going all the way back in the Old Testament, we can see that worldview popping up here. We'll gladly give that money to Gideon. They're happy to do it. They'll give their very last cent if there's some promise of blessing that maybe they'll get something back for that money. So they spread out the garment. Each man threw it into it the earrings from his plunder, and now the weight of the gold that he had requested was 1,700 shekels. That's about 50 pounds of solid gold. That's a fortune. Besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camel's necks. So he gets the spoil of the kings too. So Gideon is now going to live well above the standard of Israel. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight thereof, not by constraint willingly or by filthy lucre, but by a ready mind, 1 Peter 5.2. The job of a leader is to be sharp in the head, not rich in the pocket. Now he uses all that money to make an ephod. Um, So he's mimicking, remember there's an ephod in the tabernacle. When we went through Leviticus, there's this formal ephod that the high priest wears and the high priest doesn't own it, it goes with the high priestdom. So, But he's going to make something that looks like that. So instead of building an idol to Ashtaroth or a new Baal statue, he's going to build a golden ephod statue. It doesn't make a difference if you call it Christian. If it's an idol, it's an idol, even if it looks Christian. So just changing the name doesn't change the purpose of idolizing that thing, that wealth that's going to be there. Adding a Christian adjective doesn't make it Christian. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. In other words, they worshipped it. They they, They were celebrating themselves by looking at that ephod. Look at how awesome we are. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. So didn't we start in Gideon's house with him tearing down idols? Come all the way through all these victories for God, and then we're right back to him setting up idols. That should be a cautionary tale for us as believers. It doesn't matter how you do in the middle of your life. It matters if you finish strong for God. You can have two, three great years for God and just live on your laurels the rest of your life, but that's worthless. You have to do it all the way through. It's a commitment you start with, and you keep it till you're dead, and you go until you're gone. So playing the harlot here is an image we've seen before. It's this idea that they're worshiping it. When it says, set it up, to set something up, the Hebrew word there implies that it's to be seen, like an altar gets set up in Genesis 28, the sanctuary gets set up in Joshua 24, and idols get set up in Daniel 3. It's the same term. The the idea of setting up the ephod is so that everybody can look at it and, and, and sing around it or do whatever they do. This is the first judge in the book of Judges that ends this story actually leading Israel back into idolatry. Like the other judges didn't do that, right? Each judge gets a little bit worse. They do it just a little bit further from God's calling. It says it becomes a snare for him. You let that sin into your life, it becomes a snare for you. You don't get to live in the joy. It's amazing. People can follow Christ and give Christ their life, but if you keep sin in your life, you never get the benefits You may be on your way to heaven, but you never get the absolute rush of seeing God do his work and doing it in the lives of the people you know. So get the sin out of your life as much as you can. I mean, we're human. We're going to struggle with that. But struggle with it. Fight it. Don't just passively bring it back in like Gideon does. So how does Paul deal with this idea? This is in Acts chapter 20. None of these things move me I don't count my life dear to myself so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I've received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. It's not about how you start. It's about how you finish the race. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended but only one thing. I don't, uh, by the way, uh, Philippians 3.13. I don't count anything important other than that I know one thing. There's nothing else I claim. Just this one thing. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to the things which are before us. You can't keep looking backwards. Sin shouldn't lead to a lifetime of shame because God's forgiven it. You let it go, you move forward. Our past sins are gone and our past works, even good works for God, don't matter that much. As Paul does it, it's the same thing that Gideon's supposed to teach us in the negative. We can't just look at what we did yesterday and be satisfied with that. We have to think, what am I doing tomorrow? And you anticipate the work for God that you've got this next week. So you're not taking glory for what you did in the past, and you're not living in shame from what you did from the past. You're just looking forward like Paul does. Thus, Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, that they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So God gives them a break. I think this is the end of Midian i got some Bible teachers in here that might know different, but uh, I think this is it for Midian, right? I don't know if they come back. Uh, but they don't come back for at least 40 years, according to verse 28. Um, verse 29, we get the end credits. You know Marvel movies, like they run the credits and then they show a little scene, like for the next movie? I feel like at the end of the chapter 8, we get like a little end credits scene after it's all said and done with Gideon. Then Jerubbaal, horrible name, Uh, the son of Joash went and dwelt in his own house. When a son dwells in his own house, it means that they've grown up and become a big boy because they go and prepare a place. And when they take a wife, they go snatch her up and they go live in that new place together. So when it says he went to dwell in his own house, that might be him being 30, 40 years old, but he's now established himself as in charge of things. Gideon had 70 sons who were of his own offspring, for he had many wives. Ah, shoot. He didn't just fall to pride and greed. Now he's fallen to lust. And everything's screwing up in his life. But it all started with him taking that little collection. So a harem is not common amongst the Israelites. It is now becoming common amongst the the Israelites because they're living with Canaanites, where harems are all the rage. So we can see this culture of sin is just all around Israel now, and they mention it like it's no thing at all. Um, The Old Testament shows the conflict and issues and hurt that comes from polygamy. In the New Testament, Matthew 19.5, it outright condemns polygamy. Christians aren't polygamists because it's just not supposed to be that way. Um, But we see this happening in Israel. That's not permission for polygamy. It's actually supposed to be a cautionary tale. Gideon's not someone we follow in that regard. So his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son whose name he will call Abimelech, or Abimhelech. In the Hebrew, that means my father, a king. Remember how he said he didn't want to be a king? But he's naming his son, son of a king. So the pride gets him too, snags him. All three, pride, lust, greed. Here's a guy who should have gone down as a superstar for God, following his word, making right with him. He talks face-to-face with Jesus. This should have been a hero in the Bible. But instead, in his latter years, he just lives on his laurels, lives on that money, takes a ton of wives. The name he gives his son is not a Jewish name. It's a Philistine name, which means he's probably taking wives from Philistine people and Canaanite people. Verse 32, Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age. <laughs> I like that in the Bible you got phrases like, a good old age. And I looked it up in the Hebrew, and it's a good old age. I mean, it's really just an interesting little phrase. It's where we get that. And he was buried in the tomb of Joash's father, in Ophrah, and in the, of, of the Abizarites. Uh, he dies. He leaves a legacy of idolatry, polygamy, bad leadership, pride, lust, greed. And so it was, as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Baroth their god. Here's the kicker with that. Baal Baroth means the Baal or the god of covenants. They take a new covenant god under Gideon's horrible leadership in his latter years. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their god who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbaal, Gideon, in accordance with what he had done for Israel. So in hopes of being honored, they don't even honor him after he's dead. They don't even lift him up in that way. So Israel's past forgetting God, forsaking God, compromising with other gods. Now the outright worship of Baal Bareth, they're actually worshiping other gods. So in the, as we get to this judge, we're seeing the fall of Israel's happening in a cyclical kind of way. It says, So it was, the people ultimately are going to follow the example of their leader. And they fall in that kind of way. So where they should have been finishing strong, they don't. So next week, we have a 57 verse chapter. It's a beast. But we will get through it and maybe more as we go through the judges. We'll see where we're at. In this particular story, you just look at Gideon again in summary. Dealing with these different groups of people. And think about... All these groups that were in conflict or running away from Gideon weren't the problem. At the end of the day, the people were the problem that wanted to elevate him and put him on a pedestal. Those were the people that eventually got Gideon to fall. And so as we kind of move forward in the kingdom and we're looking around at what kingdom people do sometimes, we have to be aware of that and be discerning of it. Not that we're looking for bad people under every stone, but we have to be kind of wary of those situations and, and in grace and in godliness. Encourage and admonish one another to be one of the groups of people that would fight with Gideon. Be those faithful few that stick to the Lord in all that we say, do, and definitely don't let your leaders fall to pride, lust, and greed. Protect them from that. Like, don't let them get rich, right? Don't let them take multiple wives, um, and don't let them get too prideful and try to keep them away from that. Not that you need to put them down every week. Please don't do that to me. I'd be crushed. But the goal isn't to do that, but the goal is to keep them humble and to help them know that they're being called to one thing, but everybody else in the church is being called to things too, which brought brought to mind Paul's example of the church. that It's a body with many parts and none of those parts are better than any other part. And that in the body of Christ, we need each other to edify and encourage one another so that we can all grow in our faith and we get closer and closer to God every day. So I'll give encouragement because it's been such a bummer chapter. You guys all help me to be a better person because you keep me accountable because you show up every week. If nobody showed up, I'd probably not be so diligent about studying the Bible. So I appreciate that. And you also keep me humble. And when I'm off track or say something wonky, you bring it to my attention to keep me back on track. And I need that. Um, And if I don't have that kind of group of people, I can't grow. But I hope the same is true for you. When you look around this room, you see people that help you grow in your faith as we do that for one another and we minister to one another. Speaking of which, let's pray. Dear Lord and King, I just want to ask for your Holy Spirit to bless each person in this room. Lord, may you just rest on their hearts, give them peace. Lord, if there's sin in their lives, Lord, we just confess that to you, we give it to you. Lord, we repent of those sins and help us to go forward this week, Lord, to put them behind us for good. Uh, Lord, we can fight and struggle with sin our whole life uh, and we'll lose if we don't have you on our side. But with you on our side, we can conquer anything. So Lord, I pray for the people in this room that are struggling with any kind of sin in their life. Help them to conquer it this week. May your Holy Spirit just intercede on their behalf. May you take away the desire and the temptation. Uh, and, And Lord, we just pray that like with Gideon, you help us to fight your fights and not get distracted. To do the mission you've called us on, and we don't let anything, even other Israelites or other people in the church get in the way of that, Lord. We stick to our mission. Lord, bless us and may this word just settle on our hearts and coach us and and give us wisdom. Give us great and strong wisdom, Lord, as we um, consider and contemplate how a great man like Gideon, a man of valor, can fall. Um, Lord, if he can fall, any of us can fall. So, Lord, be with us and help us to be true to the end. Help us to be your soldiers and run the race in such a way that we want to win it. In Jesus' name.